Hello, and welcome to the Middle East Forum Speaker Webinar Series and Podcast. I'm Stacey Roman, and I will be moderating this discussion today. We are pleased to have Jonathan Tobin, Editor-in-Chief of the Jewish News Syndicate, JNS.org, join us to assess the latest round of anti-Semitism, or Zionism, sorry. Uh, Mr. Tobin will speak for 15 minutes, then open it up for questions. Should you wish to ask a question, please use the Q&A box located at the bottom of your screen to type your question. And with that, I will turn the discussion over to Mr. Jonathan Tobin. Thank you, Stacey. Um, it's a pleasure to be with you today and uh, good afternoon to everyone um, subscribing to the Middle East Forum. Um, I wanna speak for a few minutes today about what conclusions we should draw from the latest round of fighting in the Middle East and the latest round of anti-Semitic and anti-Zionist actions um, around the world. Um, what happened uh, two weeks ago in the uh, round of fighting um, we've got between Israel and uh, Palestinian Islamic Jihad in Gaza started um, when Palestinian Islamic Jihad decided it wanted to quote unquote retaliate for uh, the fact that some of its terrorists, including one of its leaders, had been arrested in the West Bank. Um, they, what they did was um, what the terrorist groups in Gaza always do, which is to say that it shot rockets um, randomly into Israel, attempting to um, kill, maim, injure as many Jews or Israelis of any nationality or religion as they could. Fortunately, the Iron Dome system, which uh, continues to save lives every time uh, one of these um, rounds begins, um, shot down just about everyone's. There were no uh, fatalities directly from, from the um, missile and rocket fire, of which over 1,000 were, were fired into Israel during a course of, the course of three days of fighting. Um, but obviously, and you know, about a million Israelis were forced, um, you know, in the southern part of Israel and in, in part of Tel Aviv and Jerusalem, were forced to take shelter uh, during the air raids. Um, one person died actually while running to a shelter. Many others were injured. Israel, um, as it always does, limited its attacks on Gaza to try and stop the rocket fire to actually trying to kill the terrorists. And um, this time, the uh, casualties were even lower uh, among Palestinians that had been in rounds of fighting in 2014 and last year in 2021. And indeed, um, one of the interesting things that happened this time was that uh, Palestinian and Islamic Jihad rockets being fired at Israel um, were caught on video falling short. And actually about half or more of all the Palestinian civilian, civilian casualties during these three days were the result of Islamic Jihad rockets, not of Israeli fire into Gaza. Um, Two other interesting things happened. Number one, Hamas, which controls the Gaza Strip, governs it as a Palestinian state in all but name, actually stayed out of the fighting this time. Um, uh, Islamic Jihad, which uh, takes its orders and its funding from Iran, was on its own 
Hamas, though it shares Islamic Jihad's uh, murderous goals of destroying Israel, um, was more interested in um, sort of keeping the quiet, keeping the peace with Israel and not losing its infrastructure. So it stayed out of that fighting. Um, Fatah in the West Bank, Palestinian Authority, was also not looking to help Islamic Jihad. But there were also a couple of other interesting aspects of this. The United States, which can usually be relied on, um, along with pro forma declarations of um, declaring that Israel has the right to defend itself, um, was unusually quiet when it came to um, the usual condemnations on anytime, anytime, you know, Israel, anytime Israel fires into Gaza. It was clear that both the Biden administration and some of its European, Western European allies were very interested in not being too harsh with the uh, government led by interim prime minister Yair Lapid, whom they're hoping will win the Israeli election in November, or at least uh, prevent former prime minister Benjamin Netanyahu from winning it. So they gave him a break. Um, and it was clear that although the same dynamics existed as in past rounds of fighting between Israel and terrorists in Gaza, the rest of the world wasn't quite as interested in this drama as they often are. So on the one hand, we could say, well, that's great for Israel. Casualties were few, um, even Palestinian casualties were not as large as they often are because of course the terrorists use the people of Gaza as human shields. But I would say as much as there were elements of this that were positive, we shouldn't jump to too many conclusions as to say, well, this shows that Israel is turning the corner. Let's understand something. As much as this round of fighting, as much as if any other one before that showed that Israel was in the right, that it was not the aggressor, that it was the Palestinian terrorists who were the ones who started the fighting, who were responsible for the casualties. All of this was as clear, or more clear even, than it had been in past rounds of fighting. But that didn't actually alter the argument about Israel anywhere in the world. The evidence of Palestinian Islamic Jihad's terrorism didn't cause any of Israel's critics in the United States to change their tune. Students for Justice in Palestine still thinks Israel should be destroyed. The congressional squad and members uh, like um, Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib are still supporting BDS. They're still against Israel no matter what it does. Um, that, that didn't alter anything. At the United Nations, um, the UN Human Rights Council's Commission of Inquiry, an open-ended kangaroo court that is uh, eager to use last year's round of fighting to um, back up the false claim that Israel is an apartheid state, that Israel is a human rights abuser. They're still in business. They're still in business despite even the fact that one of their so-called investigators was caught saying openly in trafficking and anti-Semitic tropes. 
that continues. Um, the same thing um, at the United Nations Security Council itself. One of the more discouraging things, and you could say it's just a show, what does it matter? The UN is just a talking shop. But even countries that made peace with Israel, that's not just Egypt and Jordan, but even the UAE, which uh, the United Arab Emirates, which was part of the Abraham Accords, um, the great breakthrough towards normalization and peace two years ago, spoke at the UN Security Council about this round of fighting and trotted out the same tired anti-Israel tropes, the same lies about Israel being the one responsible for it, the same uh, propaganda claiming that Jews going to pray on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, the holiest spot in, in Judaism, and which Muslims claim as their third holiest spot, that it was their temerity in visiting this place that somehow caused the fighting. Jordan said that, even Egypt's ambassador. And Egypt is very closely allied with Israel on the ground against Hamas and against the Muslim Brotherhood in Gaza, maintaining its own blockade of Gaza. The same lies were heard at the UN. What conclusion should we draw from that? Well, it's true that the Abraham Accords has changed the world. Israel is more secure, has more friends. And it's true that Arab diplomats and Arab governments say one thing in private to Israel and one thing in public when they're speaking to their own people. But the fact remains that the culture of anti-Semitism throughout the Arab world still compels even governments that have made peace, and that wish for good relations, that look to Israel as a bulwark against the country they really fear, which is Iran, even so, they feel compelled to say terrible things about Israel, to trot out these tired anti-Semitic tropes. The same thing happens with Israel's critics throughout the world. I think that should remind us that as much as defenders of Israel like to point out Israel's morality, the fact that um, its security deserves to be defended, that its army is the most moral in the way that it conducts its measures of self-defense against terrorism. These are all true. But the only argument that really matters in the debate about Zionism, in the debate about Israel, is whether Israel has a right to exist not whether its army is moral, any more than whether its scientists are brilliant or its beaches are beautiful. We who care about Israel should remember this and not be distracted by other issues, not go off on tangents, not seek to justify Israel by means of its virtues, but stick to the main argument. The whole argument about Israel is not about what it does, but what it is, the one Jewish state on the planet. And that is the one thing that its critics and its opponents cannot bear to see exist. We must focus in on this assault against Zionism, this delegitimization of the right of the Jews to one state on this planet, to focus 
on these basic rights and the fact that Israel's enemies seek to deny them, which is an act of anti-Semitism. Anti-Zionism is not merely a variant of comment about public affairs, it is anti-Semitic. It is anti-Semitism in action. Anytime we get diverted from that, ultimately we're wasting our time. That's what this round of fighting, that's what actions at the UN should always remind us. Anything that distracts us from that basic truth is not helping to make Israel's case in the world. Thanks, and I'll look forward to your questions. Thank you so much. So the first question we have is from David Levine. Bottom line, how did Islamic Jihad get to possess so many rockets that they could fire over 1,100 of them into Israel? Well, um, the fact is, um, as much as Israel and Egypt blockades Gaza, they have ways of getting arms in. I mean, they have also have their own arms manufacturing inside Gaza, um, which they've been working on in, you know, ever since um, Israel withdrew every soldier, settler, and settlement from Gaza in 2005 in a disastrously failed experiment uh, hoping to create a, a laboratory for peace and instead getting not merely, uh, as I said before, a Palestinian state in all but name, but a Palestinian terrorist state in all but name. Um, they do have the ability to manufacture crude weapons and um, they are able to smuggle in um, and they use pretty much every bit of foreign aid that goes into there. And let's be honest, Israel allows money in there basically to sort of um, keep the peace with Hamas and allow them uh, to do things so that it doesn't entirely collapse. Um, they use it to uh, further their infrastructure, you know, the tunnel city underneath Gaza, the, the place, um, it's true uh, as uh, Israel's uh, critics who claim that it's, um, actions are disproportionate that the Palestinians don't have bomb shelters, but in Gaza, there are plenty of shelters, but they're for the bombs, not for the people. Um, uh, Hamas and Islamic Jihad um, have, uh, you know, a warren. Um, nobody knows how extensive it is um, underneath the surface in Gaza of, uh, of fortifications and places where they can um, hole up um, so as much as, as brilliant as Israel's campaigns are in pinpointing them, um, they're not able, you know, short of a massive invasion, which nobody in Israel wants, um, and which the world would not tolerate. There's no way to simply um, wipe out their military infrastructure. It's a fact of life. And as, um, you know, the Israeli military says, they have to go in and mow the grass every now and then, which is kind of a cynical and, um, you know, it's kind of, it's a tough thing to say, but so long as, you know, the basic fact is that Israel is not going to go into Gaza, doesn't want to lose, doesn't want to, you know, face the casualty losses that would be involved in such a campaign, knows that um, it's basically politically impossible inside Israel and in international forums, um, these terrorist groups, which are, you know, plenty of funds. And in the case of Islamic Jihad, uh, they're part of the Iranian, directly part of the Iranian terrorist network. They're going to remain heavily armed. 
Thank you so much for that. Jay asks, why is the Egyptian blockade of Gaza never criticized or mentioned in the press? <laughs> well, of course it isn't um, because it's not Israel's blockade. Um, nobody cares what Arabs do to Arabs. Um, nobody cares what the Palestinians do to Palestinians. Nobody cares that the um, Palestinian Authority is a corrupt, tyrannical government um, which exploits its own people, Mahmoud Abbas, who this week uh, made some headlines by claiming, by going to Germany. Um, and in Berlin, uh, you know, on the 50th anniversary of the Munich Olympic massacre, which he helped organize and fund, claimed that Israel, rather than apologize, he said Israel had had uh, created 50 holocausts um, in, in the ultimate chutzpah, you know, and, and why, and as I wrote this week, why should anybody even be outraged? I mean, he's a Holocaust denier. He's a terrorist funder um, in the past and, in, and today. And yet everyone in the international community and indeed many in Israel still want to treat him as a legitimate peace partner. Um, so, you know, th these are these are just, you know, this, this, these are the realities of Palestinian life. This is the realities of um, international discourse. The only way a, a Palestinian suffering um, can be noticed by anyone is if it can be in some way attributed to, to Israeli actions. Um, this is, again, another manifestation of the anti-Semitism that drives so much of the, uh, the opposition to Israel. Um, again, it's another sorry and, uh, you know, it's a terrible fact of life, but that's that's a fact. Um, if you're expecting the New York Times to do a, a series on, uh, you know, Egyptian, um, you know, attacks on the Palestinians or on Palestinian misrule of the Palestinians, you know, don't hold your breath. Thank you so much. And uh, what you were just saying about Abbas in uh, Germany, a different David Levine, uh, as uh, Chancellor Scholz said nothing at the time, what's your reaction? Well, um, that's, you know, it was disgraceful that he didn't push back against it. I, you know, it, if you watch the tape of their, of their encounter, there are a couple of really interesting things. One is that when Abbas said the business about Holocaust, he said it in English. You know, it wasn't like he was trying to be obscure. He wanted the international press to hear that, you know. Um, also, interestingly, that as when Abbas went off to his usual rants about Israel, um, uh, the German chancellor actually did say, I don't agree with you calling Israel an apartheid state, um, that that's wrong, um, which, okay, thanks. Um, thanks for nothing, almost. But no, he did not respond to the Holocaust manner, and he got a lot of criticized criticism inside Germany for this, where it is, you know, it's, it, you know, they don't have a First Amendment that is actually possibly illegal, what, what you know, Abbas did uh, in terms of his Holocaust denial and that kind of uh, religious, you know, slander. Um, but, you know, these Western European leaders are always very reluctant. I mean, Abbas is their guy. Um, what is he doing there anyway? It's not like he's some legitimate leader for, for them to invite him on the 50th anniversary of the Munich massacre is itself an insult, is itself a, a sign of, you know, insensitivity doesn't quite cover it, does it? Um, you know, why it, why aren't we holding him accountable? The man who, who wrote, you know, his doctoral thesis in, in Moscow about, you know, which was Holocaust denial, 
why does anybody still treat him as legitimate? Um, the answer is he's he's the Palestinian leader and he's the embodiment of Palestinian nationalism, was it, which is inextricably, alas, tied to their 100-year-old war on Zionism. So he still gets treated that way. Fantastic points. JL asks, this issue has been discussed for years. At what point do Israelis and Zionists need to stop being concerned about whether Israel or Jews are liked or not and simply continue to build the state? Trying to defend, trying to defeat anti-Zionism is like trying to defeat anti-Semitism, a complete waste of time. Um, I think you're half right with that. Of course, what Israel must do, as it always has done, you know, as David Ben-Gurion said, you know, we have to care less about what the what the non-Jews say, but about what the Jews do. However, um, I think it is foolish to think that um, the anti-Semitism that goes on, for for example, at the UN, has no impact at all. Of course, it has an impact. Um, if the Palestinians and their anti-Semitic international allies um, can succeed in making Israel, you know, their goal is to make Israel South Africa in the, in the 1980s, you know, and to break it. Now we can say that's never going to happen. Israel is nothing like South Africa. There is no apartheid in Israel. It's all a big lie. But the UN has the ability, you know, the UN Human Rights Council, um, the potential there for making it difficult to, for Israel to operate in the international sphere, to do business around the world. BD, you know, it's true BDS here in the United States is, is an enormous flop. And to a large extent, it, you know, it's an enormous flop even in terms of Israel itself. You know, the BDS people haven't laid a glove on Israel's, you know, startup nation, first world economy. Um, BDS is a, is a way of, is, is a, um, is, is a manner of, it's a form of anti-Semitism that targets American Jews on college campuses and elsewhere more than anything else. So yes, we have to push back against that because it's the self-defense of American Jewry that's at stake. But it's also foolish to pretend as if what goes on the UN at the UN doesn't matter at all, that it's just a talking shop. It actually does have power to harm Israel. Um, and it's vital for the United States as, you know, the, the country that funds about a quarter, you know, that contributes and U.S. taxpayers, you know, uh, pay for you know, at least 25% of everything that goes on at the U.N. to be quiescent about our money funding things like the U.N. Human Rights Council, which is not just slander, but which is part of a campaign to actually isolate Israel and make it impossible for it to act and do business on the international stage in spite of the Abraham Accords, in spite of everything else. So we can't sit back and treat this as, as, as if it doesn't matter. We have to fight it. We have to try to defund it. We have to, to stop it um, if we can and never to let it go unanswered. Speaking of funding in a different way, uh, Stephen Orlo asked, would you care, characterize European governments that financially support NGOs tied to terrorist organizations as anti-Semitic? Well, you, you can certainly draw that inference. Um, that isn't necessarily the motive of some of the European governments, which um, you know, believe they're doing good and uh, helping uh, Palestinians, uh, you know, in terms of economically and uh, civil society. 
But in truth, uh, a lot of these NGOs, which Israel has tried to shut down, are linked to terrorist organizations. Their purpose is to aid the, the BDS movement and the war on Israel. Um, so no, they should not be doing this. They should be holding the Palestinians accountable. There's nothing wrong with wanting to help the Palestinians. Um, the Palestinians should should be helped. The Palestinians should be helping themselves by having you know governments and leaders that serve them. And you know if they were truly interested in a Palestinian state, you know, in two state solution, they'd be doing what the Jews did before 1948, which is to build up their institutions and their economy and to 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 create a state but they haven't done that they've just created terrorist movements which exploit and steal um people like abbas who he and his family have grown rich you know skimming from all of the aid that is poured into the palestinian authority and not only that kind of corruption but funding terrorism through their pay to slay programs um, as well as, you know, the fact is that, you know, Islamic Jihad and Hamas are actual, you know, terrorist, uh, active terrorist organizations um, getting money from, from uh, foreign actors like Iran. So, yes, I think it's fair to say that all effort, all aid to, to you know, sort of uh, anti-Zionist um, groups that are, Palestinian groups that are basically fomenting the ongoing war are both anti-Semitic and anti-peace, despite the claims that they're trying to do it for peace. Absolutely. Bradley Martin asks, given the extremely high rates of anti-Semitism, anti-Zionism across the Muslim world, as much as 90%, according to Pew, uh, does this threaten the long-term viability of the Abraham Accords? Well, uh, you, you, you've hit on something that I wrote about last week. Um, you know, the great thing about the Abraham Accords is that it showed that, you know, uh, these Arab states have common interests with Israel and that, you know, Israel you know, is, is, a, is, is a formidable ally for them against Iran. Israel is also a trading partner. It's a way for them to, you know, have, do commerce not only with, you know, the, the best economy in that region, but with the rest of the world. However, all of the governments that are, have um, made peace or normalized relations, you know, they're not democracies. They are not, you know, they are autocracies or, you know, kingdoms. And, you know, they, uh, this has been done against the will of most of their people. Now, in a place like the United Arab Emirates, we can see that anti-Semitic spirit breaking down. We can see that there's more openness and ability to, um, to, to, you know, and willingness to, to um, put away the old war, not to be hostage, held hostage to the Palestinian war against Israel. But um, the truth is throughout the Arab world, as you say, um, the spirit of anti-Semitism is very strong, especially in countries like Egypt and Jordan, which are formally at peace. But, you know, it's um, the, the peace between the Sisi regime and the Israeli government is very warm. It's not cold, but in terms of the people of Egypt, anyone who participates in normalization or um, goes to Israel is seen publicly with Israelis, um, is is um, you know um, is put in commentary, is anathematized. It's 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 you know socially unacceptable. It's a thing, way to get thrown out of civil society. So um, it is worrisome that this anti-Semitism is still 
virulent. It still forces those governments, as I said earlier, to take stands and say things that maybe they would rather not say against Israel. But the mere fact that they have to shows that they worry about how powerful and how popular anti-Semitism in their countries is. Um, I think it would be wrong to say that the Abraham Accords hasn't chipped away at it a bit, hasn't made it you know, more acceptable to, to think clearly and rationally in the Arab world about Israel. But it would also be over-optimistic on the part of those, especially those who are eager to celebrate the achievements of the Trump administration, which should be celebrated, to ignore the fact that they are not necessarily permanent. They can be reversed. All those governments, I mean, they're, you know, I'm not saying that they're all about to be overthrown, quite the contrary. But if they were, if they were replaced by governments, as happened briefly in Egypt when the Muslim Brotherhood took over, there would be no normalization with Israel. The, it would be swept away. Um, the war against Israel is not over. And um, it's foolish for anybody to think that it's about to be over. Thank you. And do you have any last minute recommendations that we can do to change this? I know it's a tall order. Okay, yeah. So let's uh, let's figure out in 30 seconds how to change the world. Um, listen, it's our duty to speak up. It's our duty to speak the truth about Israel, to speak the truth about anti-Semitism, to bear witness to it, to make our political to make our, our feelings, our, our demands known to our political leaders. You know, um, I, I attended a, an event in Philadelphia this this week where um, we had an interesting thing where a, a, a the, the man who might be the first Muslim U.S. senator, Dr. Mehmed Oz, basically gave a speech that is as pro-Israel as you could get from anybody in the Jewish community, and probably more pro-Israel than most people in the Jewish community uh, would do. He, he's opposed to any territorial concessions on Israel's part. Now, I, I, he may not win. <laughs> in fact, he's losing badly in the polls right now. But, it, you know, it shows we have to reach out, make friends, make allies, but always speak up. Focus on what's important. As I said, focus on the war against Israel. Don't get trapped in the minutia. Don't be justifying Israel because of its virtues or because, you know, of, of something about it that, you know, you think, you know, will, will persuade people. Although, obviously, common values are important. You need to speak up that say to people, make it clear that the issue is not what Israel does, but what Israel is, a Jewish state, and that it has a right to exist, and that those who would deny it are discriminating against Jews, and as the lawyers would say, the term of art for that is anti-Semitism. Absolutely, thank you. And before we go, can you tell our viewers where we can find some more of your work? Well, you can read me pretty much every day at jns.org. Um, the Jewish News Syndicate, go to jns.org, subscribe to our newsletter, um, and um, you can read columns by me, news about Israel um, that uh, you can't get anywhere else, news analysis opinion that provides you with the kind of perspective that anybody who cares about Israel really needs, and thanks. And thanks to the Middle East Forum for inviting me to speak to, to you today. Of course, we're happy to have you again. We've come to the close of our webinar. Thank you again, Mr. Tobin, for joining us today. For our viewers, please be on the lookout for our weekly webinar offerings email coming out over the weekend. Thank you all for joining us, and I hope you have a wonderful day.